This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for November 11th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk with journalists and scientists about news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, we revisit sci-fi author Kurt Vonnegut on what would have been his 100th birthday. News intern Zach Savisky talks with me about his interviews with ethicists, philosophers, and Vonnegut scholars about the influence of this dark, satirical, yet somehow hopeful writer on the ethics and practice of science. Next, we have producer Kevin McLean. He talks about the fate of ocean predators like tuna and sharks over the last 70 years. He's joined by researcher Maria Jose Juan Horda to discuss what these large predators can tell us about global ocean health and how regulations for some species don't always work for others. And in a sponsored segment from our Custom Publishing Office, Director of Custom Publishing, Sean Sanders, chats with Assistant Professor Joseph Heiser about some of the challenges and possible solutions of performing live cell imaging using wide field microscopy. This episode is coming out right around what would be the 100th birthday of writer Kurt Vonnegut if he were still alive. He's the author of books like Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, and Cat's Cradle. Today, we're going to talk about how his philosophy, his ethics, have influenced the practice of science and the thinking of those who try to solve problems with science and problems that science has caused. News intern Zach Savisky is here. He talked to philosophers, ethicists, English professors, Vonnegut scholars about Kurt Vonnegut. Hi, Zach. Hey, Sarah. So, Zach, who is Kurt Vonnegut? Can you talk a little bit about his life? Kurt Vonnegut was a satirical, dark American science fiction novelist. He was born on November 11th, 1922, hence the 100-year peg for this story, and he died in 2007. He wrote 14 novels and dozens of short stories, many of which pertain to science and technology going awry. He also served in World War II, and he witnessed the horrific firebombing of Dresden as a prisoner of war in Germany, which heavily influenced his perception of the potential dangers of technology. So let me sum up a few of the books here, maybe just like one sentence each, so people kind of get an understanding of what we're talking about. Slaughterhouse-Five is 
perhaps Von Against most read work, most famous work. It's got time travel, some aliens, a lot of anti-war sentiment. Now, science-based listeners, people who are interested in science, might be actually be more familiar with Cat's Cradle. In this book, a scientist discovered a form of water called Ice-9 that's solid at ambient temperature and can act as a seed crystal and turn all the water it touches into the same form, into the solid. In fact, this is what happens at a global level, and the whole planet is, all the water is locked up, and, and it's real bad. And while Vonnegut is talking about dangers of technology in this book, he's also, meanwhile, contrasting it with a made-up kind of nihilistic religion called Bokanonism. So was Vonnegut a scientist? Vonnegut did have some scientific background. He initially studied biochemistry at Cornell. He did end up dropping out and enlisting. Even still, he went back and did some technical writing for General Electric. His brother was actually an esteemed atmospheric chemist. And even throughout his career as a writer, he claimed to have spent a lot more time hanging out with scientists than with writers. So why did you think that Kurt Vonnegut turning 100, you know, why did you think it was a good story for science? Originally, my idea was to do a story on the real science behind the science fiction in his novels or the science that grew out of the seeds that he planted, essentially. But as I started reporting this and talking to Vonnegut scholars, I realized that the more interesting thread here was Vonnegut's thematic commentary on the overall practices of science and the ethical concerns that come along with advancing in science and technology. One of the really interesting things that Vonnegut adds to this conversation about criticizing the way science is done is that I think oftentimes, especially in science fiction, we hear horror stories of science and technology going wrong, but they're from the perspective of an evil scientist who sets out to do something terrible and then accomplishes it. And Vonnegut was really insistent that throughout all of his stories, the only villains are culture, society, and history. It's sort of shifting the blame from the traditional evil scientists to these large-scale institutions and structures. At one point, we're structuring this story around a series of quotes from Vonnegut that really point out his philosophy, his approach to life and science and people. So I, I'd love to walk through some of those. What's your first one here? The first quote I picked out is from Cat's Cradle. It's a line that says, science is magic that works. And the reason why I picked out this quote to start off with is that if you read Vonnegut, it's overwhelmingly clear that he is an incredibly cynical man. <laughs> Right. Earth is not safe from us, but this quote is actually really hopeful or at least positive. Science is magic. It's got wonder, just like magic, but also it works and we get to understand it. So there's kind of a bit of contradiction there between us being a danger to the planet and each other through science and technology, but also science being amazing. Right. Absolutely. And you know who can speak to this even better than I can is someone I interviewed for the story a philosopher of science and technology at Texas A&M University, David Kopsel. Here's what he had to say. Vonnegut is, I think, a, a sort of romantic figure about human nature. He thinks of us as being capable of great things, of good, but he is, of course, aware that more often than we'd like, we also engage in terrific acts of evil. And I think that his ultimate optimism, it's sort of overwhelmed by his pessimism about some human um, it is the point of his books, his stories. So 
you'll read in in one sentence a hopeful, beautiful passage about some um, great cathedral or or some such human endeavor, and then you know in the next we'll see it leveled and burning. So I also spoke with Christina Jarvis, who is actually a Vonnegut scholar at the State University of New York, Fredonia, and author of this new book, Lucky Mud and Other Foma, A Field Guide to Kurt Vonnegut's Environmentalism and Planetary Citizenship. And she talks about where this optimism may have come from. I think one of the greatest sources of his optimism is that long career that he kept trying repeatedly, whether it was switching to different genres, whether switching to artwork, um, trying to convey that message of our shared fate and our need to invest in ethical science in order to make a better world. Deep down, he does believe that humans are capable of great things and of reason, and that science and technology in particular are great endeavors, things that we should be pursuing, but that there are later things, you know, societal and cultural structures, corporations, political institutions that can come to corrupt the science that appears on first glance magical. I spoke to one scholar named Sheila Jasanoff, who has been a real pioneer in creating the field of science and technology studies, which focuses on the overlap between scientific progress and society. And we talked a lot about the ways in which Vonnegut's cynicism and overall perspective on the progress of science really pertains to modern debates that they're having in the ethics of science and technology. She brought up the question, who decides what works? And I think that's really crucial. That's sort of a thematic point of Vonnegut's throughout his works is that science and technology can be inherently exciting and they have this miraculous quality and they get us really emotional about the potentials of humans to create great things. But we really need to be conscious of the moral responsibility that comes along with these pursuits. Jazanoff, she's a professor of science and technology studies at the Harvard Kennedy School. She talks about not only, you know, should doctors do no harm, scientists should do no harm, but they should even go further. She says that researchers should avoid taking away the ability for people as a collective to make decisions, for everyone to decide what is good and what is bad, not just scientists. Do not treat those two things as one and the same thing, that I, the scientist, am capable of foreseeing the consequences of my own work and hereby promise my hand on a stack of Bibles that I will do no harm. That is not the same thing as saying I, as a scientist, have an obligation to others in my society to listen with attention and humility to what they think are social goods and to adapt my own understandings of the good to some extent to those of the society that I live in. She also talks a lot about humbleness and humility and who scientists should be listening to. Does that fit in with what Vonnegut wrote about, what he thought, what he said in his speeches? Totally. And she does have a quote about that, too, which we could pull in. It's when I'm reading to her Vonnegut's description of a humanistic physicist. And she said, yeah, listening is really key there. He describes a humanistic scientist as someone who watches their people, listens to them, thinks about them, wishes them and their planet well. So it's really just this idea of having a moral compass and making sure that your conscious effort to benefit humanity and the earth is present in all of these scientific pursuits. Science is there as a profoundly important instrument of transformation. 
the humanism of that physicist at the end lies in understanding that if you're going to be engaging in activity that could transform the world, you should be thinking and maybe hearing back from the world that you're wishing to transform, not sit up on a mountainside, making it all be about the laws of physics. Along these lines, Vonnegut was really involved in the early environmental movement. Vonnegut was a very adamant and heavy-handed critic of the way that humans treated their planet. He once said that humanity deserved to die horribly since it had behaved so cruelly and wastefully on a planet so sweet. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. One that I really like is, uh, we are all addicts of fossil fuels in a state of denial about to face cold turkey. And like so many addicts about to face cold turkey, our leaders are now committing violent crimes to get what little is left of what we're hooked on. And how does recognizing, you know, the humanness of other people play into that? I feel like that's a really strong theme in his work is like looking at everyone around you and realizing that they're also people. Yeah, it's this idea that mankind in general, we're all stardust. We all come from the same place. We are all living on the same planet. We all generally want the same things. And as individuals, I think Vonnegut had a lot of respect and empathy for people's wills and desires. It's on the larger scale where we start to develop these structures and governments and have large scale wars. That's when he really started to take issue with the way that humanity evolves. So the idea is that making something larger than ourselves to make decisions takes away the power of the humanity inside of us to influence those decisions. Exactly. So what's the solution then? Yeah, that's the question, right? I think that's why a lot of his plots end up being so dark and pessimistic is that it's not a, it's not an easy question to answer. The way that a lot of these modern philosophers approach the question is by essentially reversing the flow by which responsibility is assigned. So right now, the way that science works generally is that we set out to seek knowledge, we look at the potential applications of that knowledge, and then we consider the implications and the ethical ramifications of the knowledge that we've sought. One of the scholars I spoke to, Peter Paul Verbeek, is the chair of the UNESCO World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology, called COMEST. So he is in charge of this international group that talks about ethical conundrums in science. You try to realize a better world also with the help of technology, but not just because you can make this very exciting device that can do something, but that device is only exciting because it can contribute, hopefully, to achieving a societal goal. And then it becomes a way of futuring, responsible futuring. We should always have precaution to take care in advance from the future that we are designing for. And what Jasanoff and Verbeek and some others advocate for is starting by defining the societal values that we care about and talking about, you know, what is it about humanity that we really want to protect, preserve, and improve? And then designing scientific pursuits and technologies with those features in mind. This comes up a lot when we talk about basically avoiding so-called parachute science, making sure that researchers work with communities when they're doing research in those communities. When I was in St. Croix at an archaeological dig at a sugar plantation where enslaved people had worked and lived, the researchers made sure that they checked in with the community, the locals, and 
you know, let them know what they were doing and that the local people could also contribute their own questions to the work. And those tend to be a lot different than the, the scientists coming in from elsewhere and kind of matching these things up, putting them together makes it better for everybody. Totally. Yeah. And Jasnot brings up the point that scientists are inherently motivated to advance knowledge at all costs, basically. That the way that grant funding proposals and prizes are set up, it encourages the pursuit of knowledge and doesn't necessarily disincentivize looking for knowledge that could end up being potentially catastrophic. That's part of the reason, she says, scientists should not be defining the ethical horizons of what we do. Not everybody is pointing back to Vonnegut and saying, this guy, you know, made me think about this or this philosophy is inherited from him. But we can see that what he was thinking about when he wrote this book is still is, is important today. Absolutely. He like foresaw a lot of the modern ethical debates. And given how critical he was of the politics at the time that has gotten us to where we are, I think he would be equally critical of today's politics that are keeping us here. So even though scientists should be listening to other people, to the people in society with them, it doesn't mean that they themselves should be silent. Right, exactly. And that's basically what Christina Jarvis, the Vonnegut scholar, says again here. I remember his, his 1970 Earth Day speech. He lamented that Nixon was a lawyer and not a biologist. You know, I think he would call on scientists. It's not okay just to stay in your laboratories or work on this project. The fate of humanity and many species on this planet is in your hands. And so I think he would really call for people to connect with humanity, arts, ethics, politics, and keep trying to get people's attention. Okay, thanks so much, Zach. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Zach Savisky is a news intern for science. You can find his story about Kurt Vonnegut publishing on or near his 100th birthday at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for producer Kevin McLean and researcher Maria Jose Juan Horda and their discussion of tunas, billfishes, and sharks as sentinels of global ocean health. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Monitoring biodiversity and the health of ecosystems as a whole is often a complicated process. You don't always have the numbers you want to detect changes in populations and quantify threats. And the connection between individual species and the ecosystem isn't always straightforward. In the world's oceans, fishing stocks are regularly assessed, particularly for large predators that we know play a role in the function and stability of oceanic ecosystems. This week in science, Maria Jose Juan Horda and her colleagues report on the last 70 years of extinction risk for tunas, billfishes, and sharks, and their role as indicators of global ocean health. Maria Jose, welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you. My pleasure for having me here. Great. Well, it's great to have you. So 
You looked at tunas, billfishes like swordfish and marlin, and sharks. Why did you choose to focus on these types of fish? This is a great question. So we saw an opportunity here because, as you just mentioned, these species are among the largest predators in oceanic ecosystems and they're playing an important role regulating the structure and function of marine ecosystems. But in addition to this, these species are highly monitored and assessed globally by the tuna regional fisheries management organizations. And even the sharks are increasingly being monitored by these organizations. So here we have an opportunity to use these species to develop pressure and state indicators to monitor ocean health. And so you were, you were looking at population trends going all the way back to like the 1950s. Do we have global data sets that go back so many years? So in fact, yes, because tuna regional management organizations, there are five of them, they have been managing and conserving these species for a long time. So we were able to compile fishery stock assessments for 52 populations and 18 species of tuna fishes and sharks. And this assessment gives us time series of biomass that can go back 50 and 70 years. And we use this data to develop this long-term indicator to monitor ocean health, particularly in oceanic ecosystems. How many species and how many populations are we talking about here? There are 18 species of tuna, spillfishes, and sharks uh, globally dis distributed. And we were able to include all the tunas into this red list index because all the tuna populations and species have been assessed by tuna RFMOs. For billfishes, while there are 10 species of billfishes, I think we were able to include six of them into the red list index. And for sharks, this was very challenging because while there are 13 species of oceanic sharks, we were only able to include four or five species of sharks into the red list index. So that shows how, while tuna FMOs are increasingly monitoring and assessing shark species, they still need to be doing a better job to assess all species in a larger scale. You put the data available through fisheries assessments in terms of the IUCN's Red List Index. I think a lot of folks may have heard of Red List to some extent, but can you just sort of briefly you know, explain what the Red List Index is and why it was useful for the questions you wanted to answer? This index tracks the trends in the overall extinction risk for a group of species over time. And it's based on the IUCN Red List categories and criteria. So we saw an opportunity to use this data set to estimate a continuous Red List Index for a new group of marine species, the tuna, billfishes, and sharks. Currently, uh, there are also available other IUCN Red List Indices, but these indices are episodic in nature. Why they're episodic in nature? Because these are derived by the IUCN specialist groups. And because they're based on the red list assessments, these assessments, they can happen every four up to 10 years or longer. So that derives episodic red list index. So our red list index is continuous and provides a measure of extinction risk in a much uh, finer temporal scale compared to the episodic red list index. Okay, great. So it's sort of sort of like wearing a constant monitor or something like that on, for the oceans rather than just like taking the pulse every so often. Yes. The data that you get from fisheries have to do with number of fish caught and like the total biomass taken. How does all of that translate into extinction risk? 
So we compile uh, stock assessment data for all these species and populations uh, around the globe from the Tuna Regional Fisheries Management Organization. The IUCN Red List Index is based on the IUCN Red List categories and criteria. So what we did is we apply criteria A, population rate, to estimate the red list categories for each population and species over time. And we were able to estimate the probabilistic extinction risk. So basically the probability of being of a species or population being classified in each red list category. So we can take into account the uncertainty in population declines. And this is cool because it facilitates the communication of uncertainties and it facilitates the communication of probabilistic statements to conservation practitioners and managers. So in the results, there were there was some good news for some of these ocean predators and there was some bad news. I guess, should we, should we start with the good news maybe? The Red List Index is tracking extinction risk really over the last 70 years. And what we're finding is that overall, the Red List Index is decreasing over time. So the risk of extinction for this group of species is increasing over time up to the year 2008, and then the Red List Index recovers, which means that in the last period of time, the overall extinction risk for this group of species is becoming better, is decreasing. But we're finding that tuna and fishes are the ones recovering in the most recent period. And this is happening because of the effective implementation of fisheries management measures in tuna RFMOs, recovering tuna and fish species populations that once were overfished in the past and now they're recovering. Yet what we're seeing is that the red list index for sharks continue declining, which means that the extinction risk for sharks is still increasing. Okay, so that improvement that you mentioned for the, the tunas that sort of aligned with some uh, more sustainable management practices that were implemented, is that right? Yes, I think our findings are revealing a core problem in the management of oceanic multi-species and multi-gear fisheries. Because what we're learning is that while target species, so the tuna and bill fishes, are increasingly being sustainably managed, the sharks being caught incidentally by the same fisheries continue to decline due to insufficient management actions. We think that unless effective management measures are put in place to reduce mortality in sharks, and control international trade, it is likely that we will continue seeing the risk of extinction in sharks increasing. You mentioned there are these regional tuna management organizations and everything that have done a really detailed job of monitoring tuna populations, but we don't have that exact same thing specifically for sharks. Is that right? Yes. And because traditionally, tuna RFMOs have been focusing on managing tuna and fishes, but increasingly, these organizations have been adding into their mandate also the responsibility of managing sharks. So, for example, just ICAT just last year signed an updated its convention mandate to start also managing oceanic sharks. So this is telling us how recent is this. So again, historically, they've been focusing on managing tuna and fishes. That's the reason they were created. But increasingly, they have been moving into the also conservation and management of shark species. Because historically, shark species were treated as bycatch species, as incidental catch of these fisheries. And we're seeing a more and more shark species being targeted, not being any more incidental catch species, but now being targeted for these fisheries. 
So that means that these species need to be monitored closely and assessed to ensure the sustainable use. Zooming out a little bit, why are indicators like what you've put together here, why are these indicators so important when it comes to achieving big global goals? That's a very good question. So I would like to reflect a bit on this because I think a lot of us, we know that the ocean is the largest climate mitigator and it provides food resources to millions of people and it provides jobs. But I think sometimes society in general, we're forgetting that the ocean cannot do its job without biodiversity. And yet recent assessment, recent bio, global biodiversity assessments show unprecedented declines in species and loss of biodiversity on land. Yet it remains unclear how widespread are such patterns and declines in the oceans. And this is the reason we need better indicators, surveillance indicators to track the health of marine ecosystems, especially if we want to track progress towards the global sustainability targets and biodiversity targets established by the Sustainable Development Goals 2030 Agenda and the Convention of Biological Diversity post-2020 Biodiversity Framework. With the work that you did here, looking at these these last 70 years of, of all these fish as, you know, sentinels of ocean health, like what happens next? Okay, so I think it's important here to highlight that the methodology that we use here to derive the red list index could be applied to other marine fishes. In fact, any other taxa with time series data. And this would allow to expand the representation of marine species in the red list so we could monitor more effectively marine biodiversity change in the oceans. So I think that will be the next step to increase the number of marine species in the red list assessments, in the red list of threatened species, so we can better track extinction risk for different groups of marine species. Maria Jose, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Maria Jose Juan Horda is a postdoc at the Spanish Institute of Oceanography in Madrid, Spain, where she will soon start a permanent research position. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by Nikon. Custom Publishing Director Sean Sanders talks with researcher Joseph Heiser about studying virus-infected cells using standard wide-field epifluorescence microscopy of cell monolayers and organoids. Hello to our podcast listeners and a warm welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by Nikon. My name is Sean Sanders, and I'm the Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Joseph Heiser, Assistant Professor in Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, and a member of the Center for Metagenomics and Microbiome Research. His research interests include elucidating the mechanisms by which viruses exploit host calcium signaling pathways and attempting to identify novel viral ion channels. He is also very interested in the intersection of molecular biology and art and how it can be used to engage the general public about science and technology. But today I'm going to be asking him predominantly about the application of microscope-based imaging technologies in his work. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here and happy to chat with you. 
Joe, maybe we can start by having you briefly tell us a little bit about your research focus. When I was transitioning from graduate student to postdoc, I really became interested in understanding how viruses and, and the virus system I use primarily is rotavirus, which is a gastrointestinal virus that infects children, how these viruses exploit and manipulate host signaling pathways in order to reprogram cells and making them appropriate to affect the virus's replication. In doing so, we really began using molecular biology tools developed by neuroscientists that they use to understand synaptic transmission using calcium signaling. So we borrowed those calcium signaling tools from the neuroscientists and we applied them to the study of how viruses manipulate calcium signaling during infection. And what we were surprised to find is that it's not a very simple interaction. It's actually a very complicated signaling pathway that is inactivated by virus infections. And so since then, what we've been doing is working to dissect the different kinds of calcium signals that we see during virus infections and understand how the virus is generating machinery to manipulate the cell. Now, can you talk a bit about which particular imaging techniques you're using and how you're currently applying them to better understand these devastating effects of rotaviruses? The primary imaging technique we use is wide field fluorescence microscopy. And I think that surprises a lot of people because when you think about complicated biological systems, you start to think about complicated imaging techniques like confocal microscopy, super resolution microscopy, and those types of things. Now we do use some of those techniques as well, but the mainstay of our work is wide field epifluorescence microscopy. And that's because calcium signaling can be subcellular, but for the most part, these are signals that engage the entire cytoplasm of the cell. And so what we need to do is collect all of the light from those fluorescent calcium sensors in order to get the best resolution of these calcium signals. And if we want to take a lot of images in a short period of time, we need to be able to collect as much light as possible in order for us to get a clear understanding of what those signals are. And wide field fluorescence microscopy is the best way of doing that. It surprises people sometimes when we present the data out there and say, oh, well, you know, we're using a standard sort of laboratory microscope to collect these images. Now, one of the other challenges that you're working with is you're performing experiments on live cells. So can you discuss some of the hurdles with imaging live cells and how you've overcome them? Yeah, that's actually an excellent question and a really important topic because 90% of the communications I get from people who are trying to adapt our technology or our methodologies to their work has involved really being able to set up the live cell imaging in a way that can to make it work. Some of the things that can be tricky about that is the imaging media, for one thing, it needs to be absolutely clear and trying to find imaging media that's clear and your cells survive in and are healthy can sometimes be tricky. The other thing is setting up a live cell chamber. You absolutely have to have a chamber that's heated and that maintains the pH of the, the media using CO2 or whatever method that you need for that. And so it's best if you can you know, really just find a commercial environmental chamber for the microscope. It's best to work with the representative in order to find the chamber that works right with your microscope. And there is a little bit of front loading of an investment to make that work, but the dividends at the, at the end, when you're doing your data, it makes 
performing the experiments so much easier. And it also makes resulting data easier to analyze. And so that's, I think, the, probably the hardest thing is keeping the cells alive and keeping them happy and metabolically normal is like the best thing that you can possibly do. Now, it's obviously important when you are working with these cells to recapitulate what's happening in the body in order to really understand these processes. And when you're working with cell monolayers, this doesn't always provide exactly the same environment as you would see in vivo. What solutions do you have to that kind of problem? Yeah, that's actually a, a really good point as well. So cell monolayers are nice and flat, and so they're pretty easy to image in terms of like the Z axis or the, the vertical axis. But these monolayers don't always recapitulate the diversity of cells that viruses infect in the body. So a good example of that is the gastrointestinal tract, where the epithelial layer is actually made up of many different cell types. But these different cell types have really important functions when it comes to cell-to-cell -cell interaction, as well as epithelial monolayer to, to interaction with the, the rest of the body. So to address that, we've adopted human intestinal organoid technology. And these organoids are really interesting in that they are developed from the intestinal stem cell, but they spontaneously differentiate into these different cell types, like goblet cells that produce mucus, enterochromaffin cells, that produce neurotransmitters and different kinds of hormones, as well as the standard absorptive epithelial cells. And they also make other stem cells and specialized cells like panic cells that make antimicrobial peptides and tuft cells that sort of help direct immune responses as well. So this entire epithelial cell diversity is encoded into the stem cell for these organoids and it will spontaneously generate these cells. What's good about that is that you now have the cellular diversity of the intestinal epithelium and you can recapitulate that. And when you infect with viruses, the viruses will infect the cells in the organoids that they would infect in the intestine. And so you can then see how that infection is causing responses by these other cell types or pathophysiology is being encoded by the virus infection. So is there dysregulation of these other cell types because of the infection of, say, a normal epithelial cell. The downside of that is that organoids are three-dimensional cultures, or at least they're propagated as a three-dimensional culture. And we've done a number of our imaging studies with these three-dimensional organoids, but you can imagine that that adds another layer of complication for live time-lapse imaging of how are you going to image these basically spheres of cells and when you're imaging, these spheres of cells now do not stay put. They actually move around. They actually, they can rotate in the culture. They swell and then contract. Sometimes you can't address all of these things. So you can have as good a focus as you want. But if, it, if the specimen moves out of your focal plane, sometimes you just have to throw that data away. And you do more replicates in order to get the data that you want. And as much as two to three microns, is enough to push something you know out of focus enough such that the data is not analyzable. So have you discovered anything using organoids that you could not have done using a monolayer culture? Absolutely. One of the things we found is that the organoid cultures are much more active in terms of calcium signaling than the monolayer cultures. And I think that that's because they maintain more diversity in the signaling pathways that are available. The other thing that we found is because they have a diversity of cell type, 
we've been able to identify certain types of communication between, for example, intestinal epithelial, absorptive epithelial cells and the neurotransmitter producing enterochromaffin cells. And that was an important finding such that the epithelial cells are talking to the enterochromaffin cells and triggering those cells to then release a neurotransmitter called serotonin. And in vivo, that serotonin would then activate the enteric nervous system. Using organoid cultures, we are able to do that because they have this diversity of cell type, which does not exist in a simple monolayer culture. We can see a lot of different kinds of signals in cell lines, but cell lines are an artificial system. And we always have to go back to the more biologically relevant kind of system as much as we can. Ideally, hopefully one day we're going to get to be able to do this more robustly. But intravital imaging, I think, is sort of the next evolution of this, where we would be able to image in vivo in an infected animal. Like there are many hurdles to doing time-lapse imaging of organoids in tissue culture, there are many additional hurdles to make time-lapse imaging in vivo of things like the lung or the intestinal tract that's infected, and it's pretty challenging. But I think one day we'll get there, and I think that's the next evolution of these kinds of studies. Really fascinating work. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Sean, it's been a great time chatting with you, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And our thanks to Nikon for sponsoring this interview. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.